good to be back with all of you. Good to be with family. Um, getting to talk to Mrs. Mummert last week. Some of you may not realize, but Mrs. Mummert, she used to be my babysitter. <laughs> way, way back. Yes, indeed. And uh, just good to be around family. And this has always been a church that Paige and I have considered to be our extended family. Uh, she sends her regrets. She's uh, in the home country, otherwise known as Texas, this week. Uh, sorry, Clint. My wife had to, had to go spend the weekend, and I chose to let her go do that by herself at 104 degrees. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I had to preach here. I had obligations. I had responsibilities. Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles again to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to take a look there again. For those of you that missed uh, last week, let me bring you up to date. Last week, we looked at the first five verses of Joshua chapter 1, and, and basically, we summarized our lessons as follows. Uh, number one, the promised land is something that actually starts this side of the grave, that the Lord wants us to enjoy the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. He wants us to enjoy all of those elements, this side of the grave, that that's our version of the promised land in a sense. The problem is, though, that as with Joshua chapter 1, the Lord will only be able to fulfill his promise to the degree that we take care of the premise. For every promise, there is a premise. And in Joshua chapter 1, the promise of the land of Canaan being offered to them, all 250,000 square miles of it, was based upon a premise that I will give you everywhere where you what? Set your foot. And as a result of that premise, that he can only bless us with the promise to the degree that we take care of the premise, which is something we have to claim, it's something we have to do, to the degree that we don't do it, he's unable to fulfill that promise. As such, the people of Israel had only, at the end of Joshua, had only inherited about one-tenth, ten percent of the promised land. It's not until King David comes along that all of Canaan is finally realized as a promise. We looked at Philippians chapter 4 as a New Testament example that sometimes there's a premise to the promise. We are promised a peace that passes understanding, right? But what, what did we talk about last week, though? The, the premise of that is don't worry about anything. Pray about everything and with thanksgiving. That to the degree that we fulfill that premise then the promise is ours in Christ Jesus. So we figured out that this promise of the Lord is ultimately something that we have to claim. We have to claim. And we're not talking about salvation. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. We're talking about the degree to which we experience all that is ours in Christ Jesus. That this, this idea of discipleship, this idea of being transformed into his image, we have a part to play in that. And that there will be warfare. That was the last point from last week. And that's why we know that the promised land, from a Christian perspective, this side of the grave is, is not all about milk and honey. It's not something that we experience only after the grave any more than it was something that didn't involve warfare for the Israelites. As they inherited Canaan, it just wasn't given to them. There was warfare. 
They were giants, they were enemies, and it was those same giants that caused their faith to give way to fear so that they wandered for the previous 40 years. That's what's happening right up until we get to Joshua. They've been wandering around the wilderness. Between being freed from bondage, that's us in Christ, we are free from bondage. Hallelujah, that sin no longer holds hold of us. Jesus did die to save us from our sins. We are no longer in bondage. But for many of us Christians, we're wandering around in the wilderness, not yet fully embracing all that is promised us, because we have not yet set our foot in some places. We have not claimed those places. And the spiritual warfare is real. Sometimes the warfare, sometimes the enemy uses health, physical ailments. Sometimes the enemy uses job problems, marital problems. The enemy uses all, any number of elements to try to war against us, to keep us from embracing all that is ours in Jesus Christ. Speaking of it, sometimes coming down to physical health, some of you may recall the story. Uh, there was a doctor who, a, a gentleman who went to the doctor with his wife. He had been suffering symptoms for weeks and weeks and weeks. The doctor did, ran a series of tests. It was pretty serious prognosis. So he decided to let the man's wife in on it first and said he's got a rare form of anemia. The good news is with some medication I'm going to give him and proper nutrition, we think we can stay in front of it. We don't think he has to die. But with the medication and proper nutrition, he won't die. But understand that I mean breakfast, a really good lunch, really good evening, meat and potatoes. We got to keep him well fed. And by the way, his immune system is really, really lousy. So you can't even leave the house. It's going to have to be home cooking and the house is going to have to be spotless. His immune system is so vulnerable. And finally, he looked at her. He said, okay, so do you want, do you want to go in with me to tell him? He said, yeah, well, yeah, and, and I'll go ahead and tell him. I think he'll receive it better coming from his wife. I said, okay. So when she walked into the, the room, there he sat. and He could tell from her nonverbals that this was going to be pretty serious. He said, is it, it's bad, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, what's going to happen to me? He said, the doctor says you're going to die. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the very people that are supposed to be helping us are sometimes the very people that the enemy uses to become obstacles for us. Such is the case in the latter part of Joshua. Now, we don't really read about it in Joshua one of the passages we're going to read in Joshua, we don't get the sense that uh, the enemy is using part of Israel. It's not until we read Numbers chapter 32 that we're going to get the rest of the story. So we're going to draw from both of those today. But first, the Joshua version. Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 to start. But to the Reubenites, one of the tribes, the Gadites, another one of the tribes, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said... Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. Now that's significant because once they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan, they were going to the west side of Jordan. Well, what's on the east side of Jordan? Well, a territory that in the last couple years of the 40 years of wandering, if you go and read Deuteronomy 2 and 3, you can read all of the story and all of its glory. 
in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, we actually see where the Israelite people, before crossing Jordan, actually were involved in some warfare. And they had battled a couple kings. And so there was some territory, there was some land on the east side of the Jordan that they had already conquered. And basically Joshua is saying to these two and a half tribes, guess what? That's the land you guys get to inherit. inherit. That's your inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. But keep reading, verses 14. But all of your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever, wherever you send us, we will go. So they have a responsibility, according to Joshua, to leave their families, to leave their livestock, to leave their inheritance, to go not just with their brothers, but ahead of them. They have a responsibility to actually lead the armies of the other nine and a half tribes until they too have received their inheritance. There were battles to be fought on behalf of the nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan. Now by all accounts, here in Joshua, when they say, hey, we'll do whatever you want. We're going to go wherever you want us to go. Woohoo! That's the right answer. Oh, but let's read the rest of the story. As Paul Harvey would have said, and for about half of you, I'll tell you who Paul Harvey is after we're done, right? Look at Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. The Reubenites and the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders of the community, and said, The land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, Let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. It's the story before the story. It's the prequel. Number one, we find out that they actually asked for the land east of the Jordan. Hey, we kind of like it over here. We got lots of livestock. This is great for livestock. What a coincidence. This is good for us. This is good for our families. This is good for our careers as nomadic ranchers. This is good. Don't make us cross the Jordan. This is how the two and a half tribes initially felt about this responsibility that Joshua speaks about in Joshua 1. They had their inheritance. They had their land. They're ready to settle down. They had already done the hard work of defeating their enemies. Forty years of wandering in the desert was plenty enough. 
They weren't interested in crossing the Jordan for the sake of their fellow man. And as we continue to read in Numbers, look at how Moses reacts to this self-serving nature and ultimately how it did not even please the heart of God. Numbers chapter 32, verses 6 and following. Moses said to the Gadites and the Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land 40 years ago. After they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. And because of that, the Lord's anger was aroused that day and he swore an oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of the men 20 years old or more who came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the desert for 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. Now we fast forward to the present tense. Listen to what Moses says. And here you are, Gadites, Reubenites, a brood of sinners standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. Now let that sink in for a minute. How angry was God that the ten spies brought a discouraging report? So angry that he insisted that the entire generation, except for those two men, die off before they could inherit the land of Canaan. Forty years of wandering was their punishment, was the consequence. That's pretty angry. And what does this text say? He's even more angry with the Reubenites. And the Gadites for saying, you know what? We'd prefer not have to cross over with them. We've got our land. We've got our inheritance. Maybe we ought to just hang out here. Three principles I derive from these passages. First principle, really from last week as well. God is angry when you don't take what he wants to give you. Right? He wanted to give the people of Israel all the land of Canaan 40 years ago. And it made him angry. Angry enough that they wandered around the wilderness. Principle number two. From this week. God expects those of us who have already received what was promised to help secure it for others. And principle number three. God is more angry with those who refuse to help others receive their promise than with those that reject it in the first place. I don't think I'm stretching to draw those three principal conclusions. This isn't about anger to the point of losing your salvation. Those of you that grew up with that mindset that, boy, I've got to go dot some I's and cross some T's or I'm going to lose it. I know some of you grew up in the same heritage I did, and it's easy to do. That's not where I'm going. 
But what I'm saying is that God can be so disappointed, so angry, that you and I basically wallow in a wilderness existence as a function of his frustration and his anger. The fact that we are so self-serving. We're too busy enjoying the inheritance that we already have got. And we forget that there's a neighborhood out there. There's a neighborhood out there. Many of which have not yet received their inheritance. They don't know the Lord. Their life is being lived in a state of constant spiritual jeopardy. How dare we as Christians sit inside of our church buildings and say, oh, it's so good in here. That gets God's ire up, folks. Is he disappointed when somebody rejects his promise? When they say, you know what, I don't need the Lord. You better believe it breaks his heart. But you know what? He gets more angry with those of us who have received the promise and who choose not to lift a finger to help anybody else receive theirs. A phrase that comes to mind that Jesus spoke about. To those who much has been given, much is demanded. So could we not in this context insert another phrase? To those who much has been promised and received, much is expected. Now look, I know how this is probably hitting you. You're thinking, man, I, I came in here feeling pretty good about today. <laughs> I don't want to steal your joy completely. But I do want to remind us that we have a responsibility that goes beyond these four walls. And please understand, none of us consciously think, boy, I love being self-serving. I know better than I. I know that we say the words, and many of us act in such a way as to suggest a certain degree of self-sacrifice. I get this. This church has always been filled with self sacrificial folks. I get that. I'm not denying that. But I do want to warn us that the enemy's crafty. He masquerades as an angel of light. He takes some things that honestly are a gift from above, a good thing, and he lulls us into believing that those good things can become the only thing. Let me share three examples that I think would apply to Manasseh and Gad and the Reubenites. First, the first good thing that can become an only thing are families.
Now, Mom and Dad, you have a biblical responsibility to care for your children. There's no doubt about that. My concern is that sometimes, though, the enemy, in the rush to try to be good parents and provide our children every opportunity, can lull us into actually treating our families like idols. I heard it for years, 20 years of ministry. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard from folks who said, you know what, we would love to be there, but, but we've got a basketball tournament. We, we would really want to get behind this project, but you know what, we've got that club volleyball thing. In Lubbock, it was baseball. 11 and a half months out of 12. <laughs> Folks, that's, that's our culture now. And it used to, there was a little bit of sanctity around Sunday mornings. Not anymore. You noticed? <laughs> you know, those of you with kids trying to do any kind of sports thing, you notice there's nothing sacred about Sunday morning anymore. I even remember when Wednesday nights were sacred. Because we didn't want families to have to choose. Oh, no, not anymore. And in the name of doing right by our children, we have bought into it. To the point that we have no spare time for anyone outside of our family. Again, I'm not anti-family. They are a gift from God. We have biblical responsibility to be the best parents we can be. But there comes a point where we've got to remember that the Lord is over here going, quit hanging out with your family on the wrong side of the Jordan, folks, because there's some folks that don't have theirs yet. Give you a second one. While I'm meddling, I'll just keep going. It's really nice being able to leave. You know, I, I just do my thing. I'll let you deal with it. It's a good thing. Number two, careers. Careers. Our jobs. Well, having a job is a good thing. Being able to take care of your family financially is a good thing. The problem is I fear that we've adopted a lifestyle that requires so much work and so much devotion to career that we have absolutely no room left for anything except work. Our lifestyles force us to work so many hours that we have no energy left to serve anybody but our own interests. We're too busy buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even know. And the result when it comes to sacrificing for others in the name of kingdom expansion, well, they, here are some of the excuses I, yeah, you know, I've heard over the years. Uh, we can't make it to the service project on Saturday. We've been so busy at work. We just need some time at home. I'd love to lead that small group, but I'm not sure whether my work schedule will allow for it. We'd love to be in a small group, but you know what? We tend to work a lot of nights. We get home late from work, and so we're not even sure we could make it most nights. I'm not suggesting these reasons are fake. I know they're legitimate. I know that we're tired. I think what I'm calling for is that we 
pace ourselves. That we say, you know what, the kingdom, the Lord's kingdom is more important than my kingdom. And that maybe I forego some things in order to create margin, in order to create space. Maybe I say no to the career advancement. I know that's a 15% increase in pay. And as Americans, that's just very un-American to say, you know what, I say no to your 15% increase because I know that about a 40% increase in my time is going to come with it. And you know what, I care too much about my neighbors to give all of my time to you. Remember when God told the two and a half tribes to leave their land behind? What he told them to leave behind, not, not just their, their families, Exhibit A, but their livestock, Exhibit B. What God is saying is, if you want to follow me wholeheartedly, and did you see how many times that the word wholehearted would you, was used for Caleb and for Joshua? They wanted to follow me wholeheartedly. If you want to follow God wholeheartedly, then you have to realize that your whole heart means that you're going to give up some things relative to family time. You're going to give up some things relative to career time. Why? Because the kingdom matters. His kingdom matters more than your own. And then the third place where the enemy can turn it into an idol is friends. Friends. Now again, this is a good thing. God created you for friendship. He wants you to have friends. He wants you to have deep personal relationships. It's one of the reasons you guys do small groups. One of the reasons why Jason's going to talk more about small groups, because I happen to believe that it's only in the context of true community, true friendship, that we can get past the masks. Boy, Sunday morning is it's too easy to wear that mask. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good. It's only in the context of community and deep friendships that we say, well, maybe not so good. I'm not the husband I need to be. And I thought I left that temptation behind in my teens and 20s, but that internet thing still has a hold on me. I've probably been a little bit too friendly with somebody at work because he listens to me. Brothers and sisters, we don't get to have that kind of conversation in this room, do we? And honestly, it would be inappropriate. So yes, there is a place for friends where we can take off the masks. But here's the problem with really, really good small groups. And I've been leading small groups for 25 years, and here's the problem with them. <laughs> is that once we become all chummy and we're best friends, the last thing we want is somebody new showing up. <laughs> That's going to mess with our chemistry. 
That's why at the branch and again at Rain Tree, we had two kinds of groups. I had groups that were very much for the deep relationships and confession stuff. And then we had other groups that were blatantly missional. And that was their primary reason for existence. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of the person who's not yet there. This is where I think the enemy can use friendship to actually get in the way of mission. I think sometimes our desire, God-given desire, to have deep, deep relationships with people at church actually keep us from wanting to invite anybody else in that might mess that up. And if we're truly kingdom-focused, we're going to be willing to engage in small groups, create friendships, and in such a way that we're all about the person who's not yet there. That's trusting God's integrity. When God says, I promise you an inheritance-like experience this side of the grave, but that means one of the premise, the premise I want you to embrace in route to that promise is that you've got to be willing to fight for the people who don't yet have it. Well, that means that we say, you know what, our, our reason for small groups are twofold. Yes, to get to know one another deeply. Maybe that's one kind of group. And then there are groups that are just blatantly missional. No holds barred. We're here to reach our neighbors. We exist for the person who's not yet here. One of the ironies that I've learned over the years in watching our small groups engage their neighbors in neighborhood outreach, in prayer walks, in Easter egg hunts that weren't here at the church in the parking lot, but were in neighborhoods, in um, trunk or treats that weren't here in the parking lot, but were in neighborhoods. We'd have 17 and 18 of these just breaking out all over the city. And the best part of all was that in the name of reaching for the person who's not yet there, you know what was happening to the friendships of the people who already were? They were tighter than ever before. There's something about warfare that creates camaraderie. And any one of you that has served our fine country, you know it, don't you? You know it firsthand that you'll never be closer to anyone than when you're sitting in a foxhole with them and someone's shooting at you. So if you want to really have deep friendships... Devote your time and energy in the context of those friendships to reaching the friends you don't yet know. So what does it mean to cross the Jordan for others? To follow his whole heart across the Jordan? And we've got to be willing not to let family, careers, Friends, keep us from crossing. We've got to have the courage to say, you know what? While I already have my inheritance in the Lord, I'm not satisfied until other people have theirs. And church, I guess, I guess we, we have a choice. You have a choice individually. We have a choice collectively. Are we going to be the people of God that we read about in Joshua chapter 1 or the people of God that we read about in Numbers 32? They're both the people of God. 
Numbers 32, people of God said, don't make us cross the Jordan. We're comfortable over here. In the Joshua chapter 1, people of God said, you know what? We're going to do whatever you want us to do, and we're going to go wherever you want us to go. So as we move into a time of prayer, that's what I want you thinking about, praying about. How much of your time do you spend thinking and acting like a Numbers 32 Israelite? Don't, don't make us go. I like it over here. Versus how much time do you spend strategizing about how to be more of a Joshua 1 Israelite? Wherever you need us to go, we'll go. Whatever you need us to do, we'll do. Father God, I confess that this was a much easier sermon to preach a few years back when I was a vocational pastor. (laughs) Now that I'm trying to run a business, I just have to confess that, Father, I too have bought into the lie that career on behalf of family um, is deserving of my, the first fruits of my time. And so, Father, if there's brothers or sisters here that are just struggling with this, I, I join them in the struggle. Father, would you teach us how to, um, to see things the way you do? Help us to prioritize correctly. Father, I don't want to make you angry. As angry as you are about the thousands of people in this neighborhood who've yet to receive the good news of Jesus, you're more angry with the hundreds of people inside this building who don't lift a finger to change it. So, Father, we confess that. Forgive us where we're more like the Numbers 32 tribes. Would you inspire us to become more like the Joshua chapter 1 tribes? Father, even if today all we're doing is confessing with our mouth what we believe in our heart, send us where you need us to go, we'll go. Help us to do what you need us to do, we'll do it. Father, even though we don't know what that fully looks like, may we confess it during this time of prayer and worship. And then as you start to flush that out over the next several weeks through the vision that Jason's going to share and that the shepherds have, have agonized over in prayer, then Father, make, make, it, make it be so. Make it come to life. Mm-hmm.